Hello there. I'm delighted to say that this is the third season of What About You? This series focuses on people who have been wrongly convicted. If you think you have a story that fits with this theme, please contact me on richard at whataboutyou.co.uk. Hello, I'm Richard Moore, and you're welcome to this episode of What About You, where I'm talking to Sonny Jacob. In 1976, Sonny and her partner Jesse Taffero were arrested, charged, and convicted for the murder of two police officers, a crime that they didn't commit. Sonny spent 17 years on death row before she was proven innocent and released. Sadly, it was already too late for Jesse, who was executed by electric chair after spending 15 years on death row. Coming up in this episode, you will hear how, bit by bit, the case against Sonny Jacob began to unravel. They had taken everything from me, everything, except my, my dignity my, my self-respect. It turns out he failed the lie detector test. He did not pass the lie detector test where he was asked, you know, who did it. We had a guard's written testimony that he heard this guy bragging, confessing to what he did, and that he had us on death row for it. Sonny, new evidence began to emerge that would eventually prove you were an innocent person. Yeah, they actually, it's interesting to know what this new evidence was, not to skip over it, because it's really important. Um, before, before we even went to trial, they, in order to make this plea bargain, this deal, with the other guy, I they they had to give him a lie detector test to prove they weren't making the deal with the real killer. And they gave him a lie detector test and they submitted a report that said he passed the test. And therefore they were um, uh, justified in making this Decision. arrangement with yeah. him. Well, we didn't know about this. And then when we were having these hearings just to uh, see whether they could give me a new trial or, or try me again or not, my friend's, uh, my friend's name is Mickey. She said, Michelle, she said, they submitted this report that he passed a lie detector test. We found this in 10 boxes of material that they handed over finally that we'd never seen. And in one of the boxes was this, this uh, paper that said he passed the test. She said, why should we believe this? They've lied about so much. Why should we believe it? I want to see the actual graph, she said. She's a very visual person. I want to see the graph that came off the machine to see if he really passed this test. So they hired a, 
uh, a polygraph expert who had been a former policeman, so nobody could say he was on my side. And they had him examine the graph. It turns out he failed the lie detector test. He did not pass the lie detector test where he was asked, you know, who did it. It showed he was lying. And they, they submitted a false report. Right. Well, that should have been enough right there. You're right, yeah. They but should have had him through a lie detector test. That should have been enough. First of all, they, they knew then that they were dealing with the killer. Yeah. And they did it anyway. And had him testify against us anyway. And convict us and sentence us to death anyway. But that wasn't enough to stop the hearings. They were going to continue. That apparently wasn't enough. So then they went through more of the papers in these boxes. And they found uh, the uh, testimony of a guard who had overheard this man bragging about how he had done this and had two other people on death row for what he'd done. Now, this they couldn't ignore. Now, we actually had, during the course of the 17, 15 years before Jesse was executed, we actually had other prisoners who had come forward and said they heard him bragging about doing it. And they went to the chaplain, and the chaplain said, you must come forward. And we had a hearing, and they testified. But the ruling was that inmate word was not believable. And so we didn't prevail. But the testimony of a guard, that's believable. They couldn't put that down. And so that's what stopped the hearings, was the fact that we had a guard's written testimony that he heard this guy bragging, confessing to what he did, and that he had us on death row for it. They stopped the hearings. They uh, came and made me an offer. They wanted me, they said, similar to what they did for that young woman, they said if I would be willing to say that the man they made the deal with didn't do it, I could go home that day and have a steak dinner. Steak dinner, they mm. told the vegetarian. Yeah, that was not appealing for you, was it? Really? <laughs> So, anyway, that wasn't the thing that turned me off, but, I mean, it was so stupid. Um, and so, um, what actually they wanted me to say then, if I didn't do it and I'm being released, and I'm saying this guy didn't do it, then what am I saying? Jesse, who was dead anyway, maybe, you know, wouldn't matter, right? He did, that, that's what I'd be saying. And, you know, it was like, it felt like I was actually talking to the devil, like... They really, well, like they wanted my soul. They had taken everything away from me. I was 27 years old when I went in. A young mother, a wife, a daughter. And now, by this time, I was an orphan and a widow and a grandmother because my nine-year-old son had a three-year-old daughter of his own. And they had taken everything from me, everything except my, my dignity my, my self-respect. They, they hadn't managed to do that. And it was as if that was what they wanted to make it complete before they'd let me go. And I, I, I just wasn't going to do that because, because I had a life. I, I taught yoga and I taught mathematics and, and literacy while I was there. I'd made a life for myself. I had respect in my community. 
Um, my children were pretty much grown up by then. Um, so I said that no, that I wasn't interested in their steak dinner and that I wasn't going to do that because Jesse still had a mother and children and I wasn't going to do that to them either. So they sent me back to prison <laughs> and that's when I had my moment of doubt, like did I, really do, should I, did I really do the right thing? And a friend of mine, Maria, she said, Sonia, you did the right thing and you're going to go home. I'm like, okay. Maria, your lips to God's ears, I hope. <laughs> and there you go. And before another week went by, they called me on a Friday to go to court. Now, they, we all know in prison that you don't get called to court on a Friday unless they're going, you're going to be released because the jail doesn't want to keep you over the weekend. They don't want to be responsible for you. So they lined the, the walkways. Everybody did. Prisoners, guards, staff people, you're going home. Yay. And so I gave away most of my possessions with the caveat that if I come back there, I want them back. <laughs> I gave my last pack of cigarettes away. I started smoking in there. I said, I don't want this in my new, clean, nice, new, clean life. And um, they took me to court. And it truly felt like I could feel my parents and Jesse around me. It really felt that way. It was amazing. And um, anyway, went to court and there were more negotiations. And finally, um, it, like in 15 minutes, I was released. Well, what happened? Did they just open the doors and let you walk free? As simple as that? I had to go to court for them to fingerprint me to make sure they were releasing the right person. <laughs> there's, always the, there's always the bureaucracy. Anyway, they, uh, we were told that it would take at least two hours for all the paperwork, etc., etc. And my lawyers were told to go off and have a drink or something. And my friends. In 15 minutes, they had me out of there. They were ready to get rid of me. They had me fingerprinted. They had me at the door. They, they, they handed me my box, my limp cardboard box with everything I owned in the world. Um, I mean, you know, I, here I am, a 45-year-old woman. I have two, six pairs of underwear, two bras, two white shirts, two pairs of jeans, and two pairs of shoes, and a Walkman radio. That's all I owned in the, the world. world. My God. And right. my writing, which I had sent out as I went along, and my paintings. That's, that's it. That's all I had in the whole world. And they opened the door and said, have a nice life, and put me out. And I just stood there. I didn't know what to do. For 17 years, somebody told me what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And now they put me out. Of the, and and I, was, I didn't know what to do. That's I hadn't a penny in my pocket. Not a penny. I didn't. What do I do? So my they lawyers, literally just put you to the street. Yeah. And my lawyers were told not to come back for two hours. They weren't around. And there was nobody. And I was, oh, and I had this green paper that they gave me that was my release paper. 
you know, and I was holding it, the box and it in front of me like a talisman, you know, in case, like, it would protect me in case somebody hadn't heard that I was allowed to be free. And they might think that I escaped or something and shoot me or it was a trick. I really was, I really was worried that it was a trick, that they were going to have some marksman out there to shoot me and say that I was escaping or something. I just was too much. Yeah. Well, you had every reason to doubt them, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They'd never been, never kept their word and doing yeah. the right thing up till then. And so um, uh, I saw a couple of policemen having a smoke break over on the side and I asked them if they would watch my box for me. And they said, no. Oh, okay. And I, I wanted to kind of have a little look around, but but I, I was afraid. Like if I stepped away from the door, you know, something might happen. Um, but there was a little, there was a, a couple and a little child uh, in that area. And I thought, gee, maybe I could just go over to the little child and say hello, <gasps> you know, that'd be my speed. And so I put the box down figuring, well, we're right in front of the courthouse with two policemen smoking a cigarette, so probably it's safe. And I, I walked around a little bit. I took a couple of steps and nobody yelled at me and nobody shot at me. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll take a couple more steps. And then I went, little child, waved at the little child. The little child smiled at me. Everything seemed to be fine. So I started feeling a little better about it. And I went back to the policeman. I said, what's down those stairs? And they said, the parking lot. Like I was in Egypt, you know, <laughs> like the parking lot. Okay, well, hmm. So I went down one step and nothing, and two steps and nothing, and then I started to just fly down the stairs, and I got to the bottom, and I just began to run. I just ran. I ran and ran, and it was that time of day in the early, late afternoon, early evening, when the sun and the moon can both be out together, and so. Um, it was just me and the sun and the moon and the wind. And it was the freest moment I've ever had before or since. I was free. There was nothing but me and the wind. And I just flew. And I ran and ran until a car stopped in the middle of the road. And a man jumped out and said, Are you Sandra Jacobs? Yeah, like, how did he know? And he said, there's some people looking for you back there. I was like, oh, okay. So I ran in the direction he said, and I ended up back at the stairway again. Like, oh, I apparently ran around the entire block. I, I had no idea. I was free, that's all. And um, I was flying in the wind. And so I ran back up the stairs and I looked and I could see inside my friend, Nikki, and my lawyer at the desk, obviously inquiring. <gasps> oh boy, I went to the door. I could not make my body go in the door. I could not, it was like there was a force field there that I could not penetrate. My body wouldn't go back in there. So when someone came out and the door opened, I said, hey, I waved at them. <gasps> oh, and they came out and we had a big hug. And there was no press or media there either because they'd all been told it would take couple of hours so it was kind of a private moment and then this one newspaper reporter came up uh, and um, uh, she witnessed it 
But um, so they came out and I had a big hug. And then we went in my lawyer's car and they handed me a phone in the car. I'd been now this happened before there were cell phones, mm -hmm. before there were computers. So when I came out, all of a sudden you could have a phone in your car. You know, that was crazy. And they they helped me talk to my son and tell him that I was out. And um, then um, we went to my lawyer's house and she let me pick out anything I wanted from her closet to wear, even though she was about six feet tall and I'm about <laughs> five feet tall. And um, then um, uh, we had uh, uh, some food and it was just a beautiful beautiful time and everything was overwhelming to me you know you get to choose what you want to eat and 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 I asked for chopsticks we had Chinese food that's what I wanted Chinese food and we ate with chopsticks and um and they had wine you know that's how people celebrate right but that was like the worst thing to do to me I was I was barely able to to deal with everything and then they gave me wine and I know now that's not the thing to do because then I had to try to fight through the wine to deal with everything as well. That was totally overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I would definitely advise people not to give people a drink when they first get out. But um, so it was amazing. Them first moments of freedom, Sonny, you had me completely spellbound. You know the way you described it was so vivid. But when when you were in prison, like, did you think about that and think about what things you wanted to do when you got out? I'm sure you dreamt about it often. Um, I had a list of things I wanted to do. You know, everybody does. You know, you sit in prison for years and years and years and think, when I get out, I'm gonna whatever. And so mine was. Um, I was going to have a bubble bath, a bath. There's no baths in there. You're lucky you get a shower. And so I was going to have a bubble bath. I was going to have a, a Thomas's English muffin with real butter. And I was going to um, uh, find a man. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. Uh, how and, can you stop there? <laughs> yeah. And I did. Uh, I and so. Um, <laughs> Uh, I had the bubble bath, and um, that was lovely. And then, uh, but the uh, the next morning, they took me to a hotel, and we had a lovely gathering there. Uh, my Jesse's mom came, and my friends came, and it was nice people that I'd known from in there that were out. And uh, anyway, um, the next morning, I wanted to go to the sea. It was urgent. It was essential. I needed to go to the sea and let the sea wash away the whole prison experience from me. It was the only thing I could think of that was powerful enough to do that. And I understand baptism now because of that. It's like a baptism. It washes away the old and allows you to be new and clean and fresh. And that's how it was for me. So um, um, they got me a bathing suit and took me to the yeah. uh, to down to the beach, which was right by the hotel. And I ran and ran and ran along the beach, and then I ran into the water. And I was the only one who saved a bunch of kids. And there's a picture in my book 
uh, actually that moment is all a bunch of kids and me in the water <laughs> and I let the water just cleanse me and and so interestingly um, when I met with Peter whom we'll talk about soon um, he did the same thing when he was released he went right to the sea and let the sea wash away the dross as he called it of the prison and so then they took me to breakfast and I was going to get my Thomas's English muffin with real butter but they showed me this menu that was like a book. It would have taken me a week to, to, to read all these choices, choices that I hadn't been able to, you know, in prison you don't get to make many choices. You can choose whether to get in trouble or not, you know, but you don't choose when to eat, what to eat, where to eat, you don't get those choices. So here I'm supposed to choose from all these things on this menu, it's, it was crazy. So um, uh, I asked permission as one does when one's been a prisoner. Would it be okay if I changed my mind? Because it said something about an omelet that sounded really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they said, of course you can. You can have anything you want. But the concept of having anything you want was like not, not in my lexicon of thoughts. It's like it, that, you know. So anyway, I was like, okay, you're sure though that I can have my muffin tomorrow? And they were like, yes, yes. Okay, then I'm going to have an omelet. You know, I'll trust you. Trust was a big issue. And it still can be an issue. Uh, I trust the universe, though. And that's a huge bonus for me. Because it's, it's the process that I've seen happen over and over again that I can trust the universe. The universe is, is, will always come through for me, which is God, really. But um, anyway, so... Uh, sure enough, that was great. And then um, we went shopping <laughs> and uh, I, I got some clothes and um, that was really amazing. And everybody was helping me. Try this on, try that on. <laughs> like, it was so fun. I still remember that. And um, then we had a little party uh, that night um, and uh, invited all people who you know, had been supportive and believed in me. And um, then uh, I went uh, with my friends. My friend Mickey took me to, um, uh, we visited uh, my yoga teacher who had come into the prison, the Swami, Swami Naranda. And she, um, I, I said I would return to, to spend some time with her, and I did. Coming up in the next episode. And then I got to spend time with my granddaughter, who was at that point three and a half years old. And she said to me, Grandma, I know why you never came to visit me. Because you were lost. And I said, that's right, Claudia. I was. But I'll never be lost again. When her father was executed, it, it went wrong. He didn't just die. In fact, he, he caught fire. Yoga, meditation, and prayer. Those are my tools. That's my trinity. And it works. It would not have been possible to make these podcasts without the support of a number of people. First of all, I'd like to thank Ursula Murr and Anya Murr for your continued support. Thanks to Joe Murray from Afri in Dublin 
who introduced me to Sonny. Of course, a big thank you to Sonny Jacob herself for being so generous with her time. Finally, thanks to you for listening.